Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcast blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And remember, while there are no commercials in these episodes, you can always support the show by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade or by doing your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com. Today, one day before Thanksgiving, we are rewinding all the way back to November 23rd, 2010, episode 557, Surviving Thanksgiving with Chef Keith Snow, where you'll learn how to make the perfect turkey, gravy that doesn't come from an envelope, and a whole lot more. I hope you enjoy it. I'll catch you guys on Monday with a new episode of the Survival Podcast. And don't forget to tune in tomorrow for our annual a Survivalist Look at Thanksgiving special. segment. And as I said, we are fortunate today to have Chef Keith Snow with us today. And uh, Keith's been on before. He talked to us about harvest eating, and we'll give you a little refresher on that. But I really brought him on today to uh, talk about how we can be a little bit more creative with our uh, Thanksgiving tables uh, just a couple of days from now. Uh, Keith, thanks for being with us again. Hey, Jack, thanks so much for having me on, and uh, I still want to thank your listeners for uh, for their attention, and, and I'm excited to talk about Thanksgiving, because the, the holiday season for me is, is kind of like the, the Super Bowl of the year. It really gets busy around uh, this time for harvest eating. Yeah, I would imagine so. So we did have you on before, and it was a great interview. It's probably one of the best interviews we've ever done. I can't tell you how much feedback I got uh, about it and people wanting you to come back on. And I know you were just telling me as we were, were talking before the show about how you've gotten a tremendous amount of feedback. But there's probably some folks that listen to the show that didn't catch that episode. Just so for their edification, could you tell us who is Chef Keith Snow and what is this harvest eating thing all about? Sure. Well, I am... Uh... I don't know why, but I'm going to give you my age. I'm, I'm a 43-year-old uh, married man. I live in the, the uh, hills of western North Carolina. And I started cooking when I was about 14 years old. I actually started washing dishes and then cooking in uh, New Jersey. And I worked in every kind of crappy restaurant and then a lot of good restaurants all over the country in uh, probably six or eight different states. And I studied finance and economics in college. I didn't go for culinary but I trained with some really high-class chefs literally all over the country. And then um, in 2000, I became the executive chef of a large ski resort up in Colorado called Copper Mountain Resort. And when I was there, I was uh, charged with uh, keeping about 400 hoodlums in line that, that worked for me. We had 12 outlets and nearly $10 million in food and beverage revenue. And at that point, I really got... Uh, a lot of chance to design menus because we had 12 different establishments in a $3 million catering business, and I was really heavy on working um, on new concepts and new menus. And, and then we had our first daughter, and, and that really threw us for a loop because at 10,000 feet above sea level, life is a little different, and uh, winter is kind of with you, you know, eight months of the year just about. So we moved to uh, Western North Carolina. I just decided I did not want to raise my daughter in that perpetual winter. And um, once I moved to this farm here in, in North Carolina, I had a little bit of time on my hands. I was unemployed. And uh, so I started planting gardens, and we have three gardens. We have uh, horses. We had chickens, goats. We've been meeting all kinds of local farmers, dairymen, 
people that raise chickens. Uh, I started to get into grass-fed beef and pork and just really heavy into producing and homesteading. And this was back in, like, 2003. This was right square um, in the heart of the low-carb movement. And this was right about when that, that whole uh, thing was about to collapse. And I knew some people inside the food industry, and they were telling me that stockpiles of low-carb uh, inventory were really starting to get big and that that thing would come down. But at that point, when I was talking about local food and seasonal cooking and, you know, buying the things that grow around you and cooking those and avoiding things like, you know, imported from Chile and imported from China. I mean, people don't know a lot of the finished food products. Uh, you know that I make a, a line of pasta sauces. In researching the uh, and buying the ingredients for that sauce, I realized that people are importing onions from Peru and garlic from China and stuff from all over the world. And that's the total opposite of what I preach. Um, so back in like 2004 and five, it started to catch on and people were, uh, I put up a little a small website, and it was nothing, just text recipes, and people really started to catch on. And what was happening is they were going to farm markets, and they were getting things from farmer's markets because everybody knows the amount of farmer's markets have uh, more than doubled since 1994. It's, it's probably doubled again, but really gotten popular. Every city has a farmer's market, so people were going to them. And when you go to a farmer's market, things look so good. It's kind of like when you go to a Whole Foods store. They merchandise so well. But these farm markets, you go there and you wind up, you know, you want a few tomatoes, you wind up with 20 tomatoes, bags of zucchini, because all this stuff looks good, it's priced well. And then what was happening is people would get home and they'd be panicked and they'd go right online, you know, what on earth am I going to do with, you know, a bushel of peaches or this and that. So uh, they started to find my recipes. And uh, that's how it all started, really. And, and I put the website up. I changed the name to Harvest Eating. And then I started posting recipes um, based on what season we were in. So in the summer, things like tomatoes, zucchini, basil. In the winter, greens, squashes. In the spring, mushrooms, artichokes, asparagus, things like that. And it really has taken off. It's, it's wound up being kind of a global thing. We've got uh, 150 countries that uh, send visits to us. We've got 20,000 members, and people literally plan all their meals and menus around uh, my videos and my recipes. And, you know, since then I've published my first cookbook, The Harvest Eating Cookbook. It's got about 200 recipes in it and a lot of photos. So this whole local food and seasonal cooking thing uh, has taken off, and I've been kind of in front of it the whole time, and it's really helped to kind of propel my name and, and what I'm doing, and I'm you know, extremely thankful for that. Well, very, very cool. One thing I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned this this kind of in the intro segment we were talking, and you said it's like being, in, like this is like your Super Bowl, right? Thanksgiving, Christmas, probably New Year's too. What is it like being a chef around this time of year? And I don't just mean with your business. I mean with family and friends and all, because you know they're like, okay, what are you going to throw down with this year? <laughs> That's such a funny question because, if people don't realize, but number one, nobody invites me over for dinner, ever. We never get an invite. And my wife, I don't know, she must think that, that we're just, uh, nobody likes us, but I keep asking her reminder, honey, nobody wants to cook for me. So we don't get any dinner invites. What we do get, though, is those phone calls, and, and they're already starting. And uh, if you go to the, the uh, facebook.com forward slash harvest eating, you'll see a lot of, uh, this week especially, tons of requests going on. And, my recipes for the holidays 
for Thanksgiving and Christmas are some of the most trafficked content that I have. And our page view numbers go through the roof during this time. And you know what? I mean, everyone loves Thanksgiving. It's such a great time of the year. And the meal, not only is it a great meal, but it makes you feel uh, young again. You can remember all those great times with your family. And now that people have grown up and they're, they're hosting their own holidays, they want to get it right, but it can be very intimidating to, to cook turkeys and all of these side dishes. And the biggest thing is, you know, that it's an orchestra. When you're creating a meal like that, all the stuff has got to come out together. And, you know, the, the funny thing is you've got, like, newlyweds, and uh, their, their, their mother-in-law or their father-in-law yeah. is going to come over. And the pressure on, on young women and, and, conversely, on men is, is tremendous, and nobody wants to burn the holiday turkey or anything like that. And uh, that's why I, I get a lot of these calls. And I'll just throw one little funny story in. When I was a kid, um, I grew up in a very food-centric family, and that's really helped to shape, you know, my career. But we we pulled out all the stops for the holidays. And I can remember one year we had picked up this mutt dog that was running around the neighborhood, and I actually uh, coaxed this thing into the house with a little piece of the liverwurst, like Hansel and Gretel. I, I would put one every <laughs> 10 feet. We, we got the dog in the house. We had, wind up having that dog for 10 years. But the first Thanksgiving that we had that little mutt, my mom had the table laid, and we put out a spread. And all of a sudden, I heard these screams, and I ran into the dining room, and that dog was on the table, just ripping the turkey to pieces, <laughs> stepping in the mashed potatoes. It was, it was awesome, and I wish there was a flip cam back then. Oh, yeah. My, my father was screaming, and needless to say, that, that dog was uh, thrown out the door that day. But That makes me think it. That makes me think of the, the 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 Christmas movie they play like all day long on Christmas. That Christmas story with the little kid in it, where the neighbor's yeah. dogs ravage the turkey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a classic. But you know, people want to get this meal right, and and uh, there's really not a lot of advice out there except for the web. And a lot of times, there's some really big sites that are they're very impersonal. There's really nobody behind them. So if you read a recipe and you know, I don't know if I can get chestnuts or, you know, what are these leeks? Where, where do I get those? Or can I substitute those for regular onions? And, you know, there isn't any answers. And, that, and that's why uh, I'm going to make this pledge to your listeners. This entire week, I am, uh, you know, kind of like a fireman on call. Um, and I am, I've got my, my uh, droid X with me all the time. So anytime someone pops me either an email, teeth at harvesteating.com, uh, direct message through Twitter, it's, it's twitter.com uh, at Chef Keith Snow, or, or if they hit our Facebook page, I am there to help because I want everyone to have a great holiday and, and to give tips. So I will be answering questions and happy to help any TSP members uh, throughout the week to make the right choices to, to get this meal right. Well, awesome, man. And that's a huge thing, guys, that you have personal service like that. That's that's. Uh... That's why I like to have guys like Keith on the show. They're hard to find, but when you do, we try to bring them back more than a few times. Um, let's go ahead and, and we'll start talking about Thanksgiving. Kind of what is like, start with some of the basic stuff. What are some of the things that people can do to, instead of hitting you with the same question 87 times and you answering it 87 times? What are some of the big ones and, and how do people like, you know, pull this off and make that great Thanksgiving meal? Well, two of the most critical issues uh, are Cooking the turkey properly, and then um, whether to stuff the bird, the stuff you know you're stuffing in the turkey or not. And um, the first thing I'm going to tell you is, nearly everybody listening 
a few of us will get a free-range turkey or what's called a heritage turkey from a local farm, and those don't come with those goofy little thermometers in there. Those are just straight up. But the ones that most of the listeners are going to buy are turkeys from the store. Number one, if you get a frozen turkey, by Tuesday, that thing has to be in the refrigerator at the very latest, preferably, you know, this afternoon, because it can take literally days and days for a turkey to thaw. So the number one problem, people buy frozen turkeys. Most of them are frozen. If you could buy a fresh one, you're that much better off. But if you get a frozen one, that thing needs to be in the refrigerator now. Like, I mean, I don't know when this, this podcast is going to air, but today is Monday. Get that thing uh, in the refrigerator as soon as possible. Yeah, I'll tell you not. what, because I do know when it's going to air. It's going to air about 9 a.m. on Tuesday. So if you're listening to this and your turkey is frozen, you are wrong. You need to make a phone call to a spouse or something. Get your turkey out of the freezer now. Go ahead, Keith. I didn't mean to yeah. interrupt, but I, I want people no, I to realize that. that. Yeah, that turkey needs to come out. And what I would suggest doing is, first of all, you never, ever let a frozen piece of meat, turkey, beef, whatever it is, it can't thaw at room temperature because you're inviting uh, bacterial spoilage. What the best thing to do is is take that turkey, put it in the large sink, and um, or or a big. You can even do it outside. You know, if you put it in a cooler out on your back porch, and take your garden hose, fill it up, and then have it on a sprinkle so that cold water is constantly flowing out of that cooler. Because it's a thing called evaporative cooling. Water, when water moves across something uh, cold or even hot, it tends to take with it either hot or cold. So if the frozen turkey is sitting in a cooler or in a big sink or in a big container and you have to run water on it, that's going to be a great thing. And I recommend doing that to make sure that thing is not frozen. So uh, the first thing, our turkey is completely thawed. The second thing is most people are going to put that thing in the oven anywhere from, I would say, 9, some of people even earlier, let's say from 8 to 10 o'clock in the morning or 11 o'clock, people are going to put their turkey in the oven. You want that thing to be out on the counter at 6 in the morning. Take it out, let it sit there. You want it to come as close to room temperature as possible. So first of all, can't be frozen. Leave it out in the morning uh, of the morning of, let it come up to room temperature, and then you're going to cook the turkey. Now, I'm going to talk real real briefly about temperature before we get on to any other techniques. But So we're, we have those little pop-up thermometers. Our government, particularly the FDA, they are absolutely paranoid about people uh, getting ill, which, um, you know, amazes me that they don't regulate, you know, those processed food plants better with all the E. coli breakouts. Break That's a separate story. But they have those thermometers set to go off at 180 degrees, sometimes wow. 185. If wow. you cook your turkey to 180 degrees, it is absolutely shoe leather, desert dry. It's not any good. So leave that thing in there, but you want to buy a probe thermometer. They're not expensive, maybe about 26 bucks at, at your local Target or Williams-Sonoma, wherever you could buy one. And a lot of times you can put this probe in there, and you want to sink that thing down into the breast, and then it's got a, a wire that comes out of the oven. It's connected to a digital readout. If you have one of those, you want to set it for about 160. And then if you don't have one of those and you've got the kind that you stick in the bird, once the thing looks golden brown, check check the breast. When the breast is about 160, 162, something like that, that's when you want to take it out. Because it's such a heavy piece of meat, it's going to continue cooking. It's called carryover cooking. And that's going to bring the thing up to probably 
close to 170, 165, 170, and that's where you're going to have poultry that's cooked but is also moist. If you run it, if you take it out of the oven at 185, it's going to carry up to almost 200. It's dry as a board. And that's I think there's a lot of people that don't realize with, I mean, even just a steak on the grill, this happens. But the bigger the piece of meat, the more that's true. So when you're looking at a, like a big family turkey, 22, 24-pound bird, I mean, that, that thing is going to cook for a long, daggone time after you bring it out, right? And that's another reason I see people that try to bring that bird out and cut it the second it comes out of the oven so it's nice and hot when they're serving the family, and that's probably not a good idea either. No, no, absolutely right. Carryover temperature, people don't account for that. And uh, if you let it go past 180, it's dry. And believe me, through the years, um, and there's a video. One thing we're going to do, just so everybody knows, I'm going to give you um, some links in the show notes to take people to my videos. A lot of them are on YouTube, but I'll have them come right to the site. And we have gotten more emails through the years about that one tip, about taking the bird out, like, thank you so much. We finally had a moist turkey because you can just see those, Snippy mother-in-laws eating that miserable dry turkey, <laughs> looking over at their at their new daughter-in-law, thinking, "You incompetent fool! What did you do?" So yeah, that's number one, right? Yeah, because nobody wants way. the turkey where we put the turkey on the plate and then we lay the gravy on top of the turkey and we wait five minutes and the gravy's gone because the turkey had to suck the gravy up like a sponge. <laughs> that is not a good turkey. All right. Yeah, we don't want mountain house turkey. Mountain <laughs> <laughs> house turkey for Thanksgiving now. All right. No, that's that's one thing. And secondly, when when you put stuffing inside of a bird, we already already talked about carryover temperature. The more weight that's in that bird, if you stuff that thing in there, it's going to take even longer to cook. And if you want to get sick, stuff the turkey. Because most people that get sick, they get sick from the turkey, the stuffing, um, not not being up to temperature and having raw poultry juices on there. So what I always advise is take your stuffing and cook that in a casserole separately from the bird. That is something that I always do. And then the next real critical piece is the gravy, because people are panicked about gravy. Now, everybody listening, raise their right hand, including you, Jack, okay. and uh, repeat, repeat after me, I will not use a pack of McCormick seasoning gravy mix. I will not use a pack of McCormick seasoning gravy mix. All right. Thank you, sir. We do not. We do not want to use that stuff. The turkey, the turkey is going to provide you everything you need to have an incredible gravy. Now, here's the situation. If you've got a big roasting dish, a lot of them will come with a little rack, and that rack is designed just to lift the bird up off the bottom. If you don't have the rack, you can invert a plate underneath there and put the, the bird on the plate. But you want to put some aromatics in the pan, like cut up about two-inch chunks of uh, carrot, peeled carrot, some celery, some onion, even a couple of garlic cloves, and then you could put, like, uh, some uh, fresh thyme or some fresh sage leaves in there, and then go ahead and pour a couple of cups of uh, a good white wine, like a Chardonnay or a Chablis, something on the dry side, nothing too sweet. So you put that in there, and then you're going to put your turkey that's already thawed, like we talked about, already up to room temperature. Um, you're going to put that thing in a preheated 350-degree oven. Another thing that I like to do is take the turkey, and remember, turkey skin is very slippery, but you can put a little bit of olive oil on there, rub the olive oil. It's got to be dry, so dry it off, rub it with olive oil, and then put some seasonings on it, but not too much. I would avoid a lot of salt. A little bit of salt, then you could put 
like take that sage I talked about. Sage is the classic Thanksgiving uh, herb. So you can get either rubbed sage that you buy at the store or fresh sage, mince it up really fine, and then take that and kind of press it all over your turkey. That way it's covered in like black pepper, a touch of salt, some fresh sage, and then cover the whole thing with tinfoil, pop it in that 350-degree preheated oven, and then you're going to wait. And you can look at what they say, you know, like 20 minutes a pound, whatever. But after a couple of hours, you're going to want to start. If you've got a probe thermometer, you're going to look at it and watch the temperature go up. But after, you know, two and a half, three hours, you want to take its temperature and see. Again, you want to take it out right between, I would say, 160 to 165. And once you take it out, you had made a good point about cutting it too soon. When you take that turkey out, you definitely um, do not want to cut right into it because the turkey is very hot. Those juices are going to want to flow right out. So let the thing cool down a little bit. And how I do it is once the turkey's out of the oven, um, I will. I don't carve it at the table. I carve it on a big um, platter, and I'll take the entire breast off, both breasts off in one piece, and then I'll slice those up. So my platter will be a big platter, and on either side I'll have the whole breast, and that's sliced up, and then at the back I'll put both legs sticking off the plate, and then I like to decorate it with uh, orange. Just take oranges, cut them in half, and then uh, fresh sage leaves right on the branches and stick those in there. You can even take a piping bag and pipe mashed potatoes around the turkey if you want to get fancy. But that's how I like to present it. That's and very those cool. Are some, those are some tips to, to get the turkey cooked. Now the gravy, here's the critical piece. Um, we've cooked the turkey, so, so you want to take all of the liquid that's in the bottom of that pan. There's going to be quite a bit of fat, all of that stuff, and uh, pour it off and then save that. And what you're going to do is take that liquid, and usually when you buy turkeys, there's giblets in the bag. Before, or, or actually right when you put the turkey in the oven, make sure you take the necks, and those giblets out. There's going to be a, a, a bag of what I call nasties inside of there with the giblets and the neck. Before you put it in there, and let's forgot to mention this, take those out, put them in a stock pot with about at least a half a gallon of water, maybe three-quarters of a gallon of water. Throw in a few aromatic vegetables. Remember, we had the carrots, celery, and onions out earlier. Throw a few pieces of those in that stock pot and let those giblets and neck simmer for a couple of hours. And then... What you're going to do is strain out that stuff and pour all of the juices that are in the bottom of the turkey pan, your big roasting dish. Get everything out, even if you've got to scrape some of that stuff in there, including some of the vegetables like the carrots and the celery that are at this point going to be very mushy. Throw those in there, and then what you want to do is continue to cook that for a little bit. If you've got a stick blender, you know what those are, Jack? So Yeah, yeah but I just want to make sure I'm getting this right. So I have my stock pot of my giblets in my neck. I've now removed the giblets and the uh, neck, and in that same pot, I've now taken the juices from my roasting pan and put it in there. Right. Is that you're saying? And yeah, now yeah. I get my yeah. uh, blender, okay, my stick blender. Yeah, right. And if you got it, like I said, once you remove the turkey, uh, the neck and the giblets out of the pot, put all the stuff that was underneath the turkey in there, including any vegetables, then take your stick blender and uh, buzz that up. That way those vegetables break down. You can further strain it out later, if you don't want it chunky, most people don't. But you want those vegetables to cook in there, and then you're going to simmer that gravy. And then uh, what you do at this point is put some more either rubbed sage or fresh sage right into that gravy, 
And then what you want to do is use a slurry. And a slurry is basically cornstarch and water, equal parts of cold water and cornstarch. And you're going to have a paste. Now, once that thing is cooked for a while, and you want it to reduce quite a bit. So if that started out at a gallon, reduce it down to a few quarts. And then turn off the heat. It, it still will be hot. And then take your whisk and slowly start to whisk that slurry in there. And what that's going to do is thicken up your uh, gravy. Now, if you don't have cornstarch, don't worry about it. The other solution is making what's called burr, B-U-R-R-E, burr manier. And burr manier is equal parts of butter and flour. But you don't put them in separately. You take a bowl. And let's say you take a cup of flour, which is roughly, you know, eight ounces, and then one stick of butter. Put those in a bowl and take a, uh, either your hands, this works great, and the butter needs to be room temperature, not melted, but room temperature. But soft, okay. Take your, right, take your hands or you can take the back of a, a fork and mash that all together so it's one uh, homogenous mixture. And incidentally, you can do that a few days ahead of time and leave it right on the counter. It won't go bad. We, in the restaurant industry, we keep big tubs of Bermonier underneath the, uh, the counter. But So once you have that mixture, you can use that and just take, you know, a few tablespoons at a time and throw that into your um, gravy mixture and whisk. And that's going to help tighten up your gravy because you don't want your gravy soupy. So that's going to help tighten it up. You put in the fresh sage, put in a little bit of salt and pepper, and adjust it and make sure that it's seasoned right. But let me caution the listeners, don't put the salt in before you reduce it because if you put salt in and then you reduce it down, it's going to get saltier. Wait until the very end to put in your salt. And once that thing is tasting good, uh, you're dialed. And now you've got a properly cooked turkey, your stuffing is cooked off to the side, and you've got good gravy. Those are the the main worry points that I see. Cool. So, hey, let me ask you a question about turkey here, because I've got this family that we disagree on a lot of things, but the one thing we seem to to be united on, other than maybe one family member, um, is uh, dark meat over white meat. And we're actually a family that prefers dark meat on a turkey over the white meat. So what I generally do every year to keep people from, like, you know, stabbing each other with steak knives for the last piece of thigh uh, is I'll go out and I buy a couple extra drumsticks, and I'll roast those up, and that way there's a, a plethora of dark meat available to this mob that comes to my home and consumes turkey. Um, you got any advice for when you're cooking standalone drumsticks to kind of keep them in sync with the turkey? Yeah, you can you can do one of two things. You can um, put those right in. Probably they're only going to take about, I would say, an hour, depending upon hour and ten minutes. You can put those in towards the end of the cooking of the turkey. Or another thing you can do with those is um, put them in a, a casserole pan, again, with a little uh, liquid underneath them, season them, salt and pepper, cover them with foil, and you can slow roast those. Uh, as well, just in a separate plate uh, in the oven. The other thing you can do, which I've done sometimes, is cook those a day ahead of time. Okay. That way they're cooked, they're cooked through because a lot of people don't have the room in their oven. And then throw it right in with the turkey. Like lift up your foil and throw in those uh, legs that are cooked and let those come up to temperature. So that's something you could do So you'd well. put them in right at the end then. And that's always been my struggle is trying to balance them. And I really never thought about cooking, cooking them a day in advance because if you cook them as long as you cook a full turkey, it's you've made turkey leg jerky, which is not the goal. Um, right. so, so that's a good tip. Um, 
Let's talk about some other stuff, man. I mean, I like to try to get some exotic things on the table. Not really exotic, but just different things on the table other than turkey, mashed potatoes, stuffing, right? And, and I have right. this family who, while they like to eat turkey, they're, my, my wife's whole side of the family is Dutch, and they're kind of bland, in my opinion, uh, of what their, their taste is. So, like, some of the things I've tried to bring in and make a little bit more interesting are, like, I've tried to bring in some game meats, like, like duck and, and rabbit and things like that. You got any ideas for a duck? Uh, other than, you know, that crappy, orange, horrible stuff that they put in when you buy a duck at the store, or if a duck that I maybe went out and, and gathered, um, some yeah. concepts on that, they can make it a little bit more, I don't know, just, just anything that would make a person more likely to give it a shot. Sure, and are you talking about a whole duck? A whole duck, or I'll cut it, I'll do whatever I need to do to get people to eat it. Yeah, well, what if you can get, if you can get a whole duck... Think of it this way, um, and, and that's true. People have um, beaten the whole duck all around thing to death. But what I like to do with ducks is think of India. And in India, they don't have a lot of, um, you know, poultry and things like that, but they've got a plethora of spices. So go to your market, um, and now that we're, you know, Tuesday morning, obviously, go to your market and you buy some whole cloves, buy some cumin seeds, and then maybe even some mustard seeds, and take those ingredients and take a dry pan. Put that pan uh, over the heat, like a medium-low heat until it's hot. Put in those whole spices, the cloves, uh, the cumin seeds, a couple of either yellow or brown mustard seeds, and then um, toast those things in the pan, right? And toast them, and then at some point you're going to see a little wisp of smoke. Turn them off and get them out of the pan. You don't want to burn them because they can become acrid. You want them toasted. So once those are cooled off, there's, there's two schools of thought. You can put them on the cutting board and take a pot and crush them up with a pot, or you can put them in a, a spice grinder or even a coffee mill, but you have to clean it out afterwards, otherwise you'll have funny-tasting coffee. <laughs> but do that. Once you've got those those uh, those things out, since it's uh, Thanksgiving, I still would recommend taking some... Uh, either dried sage or fresh sage, and mince it, if it's fresh, mince it up really finely, and then take a little bit of olive oil and uh, take all of your spices and your, and your uh, fresh sage, put it in a little uh, container, put in some olive oil, and then a little bit of salt and pepper and make a paste. And you want it to be pasty. You don't want it to be runny, and you don't want it to be too tight. Once you have a paste, take that with your hands and massage the duck all over, inside and out, and then put it in a, in a, uh, a, a casserole or like a roasting dish, cover it up, and roast the duck. And you're going to have an incredible flavor. And remember that duck is pretty fatty, so it's going to emit a lot of fat at the bottom. Um, and what you can do is and maybe once or twice through the cooking is reach in there with a spoon and baste the top of the duck with that fat. Mm-hmm. But that's going to give you a really interesting flavor. And if it's just a duck breast, um, of course, keep the skin on. You can do the same exact thing. And, you know, working with duck breasts is great. But um, rub them with that paste, both the fat side and the meat side, and then sear that. And I like to sear that in either duck fat, because when you get two duck breasts, what you can do is cut off a little of the fat, render it out in the pan, or even in beef fat. If you've got some steak and you've got some beef trimmings, any kind of fat, even pork lard. Put the pork lard or whatever that fat is in a skillet, Get it pretty hot, and you'll take the duck breasts, and you'll score them with a knife. And what that means is you'll just put uh, some cuts 
You'll put four or five cuts one way. You'll turn it and put four or five cuts, creating those hatch marks. And you want to cut down through the fat just until you get to the dark uh, red-colored flesh underneath. Cook that thing sear in that in that oil with the fat side down for about four or five minutes until it's got a good dark brown color. Flip it over, cook it another couple of minutes, and then turn it off. And then you're going to have you know you should have that medium. You don't want to cook duck too long, but about a medium. And with that Indian spice taste, it's going to be incredible. And people usually are not oh. uh, used to that 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 flavor. I, I got to tell you this: uh, I'm going to make that this year, and if nobody else eats it, I don't even care. After hearing you describe that, I'll I'll be happy to like when everybody's eating leftovers on Saturday to be have some leftovers of that for myself. So that is just awesome. Another thing I've always liked to do is try to come up with some kind of a cranberry sauce. And again, I'm dealing with these bland people that don't like all this extra stuff. It's it's pretty much four things and they're happy. Um, but I, one thing I've despised since you know I was a little kid and this my grandparents used to dump that cranberry Jello crap out of a can on a plate. Uh, so I've done my best with cranberries, which is basically taking the cranberries and, and stewing them with some water and some sugar. You got any ideas for making like a homemade cranberry sauce without like spending, you know, as much time as we do on a turkey with it? Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, I, I have to admit, even though uh, we had a lot of lobsters and clams and steaks growing up, we always had that uh, gelatin garbage. But, yeah, that that is uh, I'll get the call or the email probably today or tomorrow. My wife is a physical therapist, and at the hospital, one one year I put on the Thanksgiving for the staff workers there, and uh, they tried my uh, cranberry sauce, and every year I get requests for the recipe. And that's in it's, – it's on the website, and I'm pretty sure it's in the cookbook, but we'll make your listeners have it. And, again, it's very easy, and uh, it's two, two bags, and they're usually about two pounds, two bags of whole cranberries. You put them in a, a pot, um, and you put in some water, some sugar, like you said. And what I like to do is take a zester and zest the skin from uh, two oranges. Zest the skin and put that in there. Cut the oranges in half, squeeze the juice, and throw the entire orange in there. And then I like to put a little bit of uh, fresh nutmeg. And if you can get nutmeg, the nutmeg uh, look like about the shape of a grape. They're little, little uh, nuts. You can get those fresh. It's way different than the stuff that's ground in the store. But I put a little nutmeg in there, the orange, the zest, the juice, the whole thing, and let that cook down. You can also put in a little bit of uh, clove if you don't have um, the nutmeg. But be careful not to put a whole clove because those things, they do not dissolve. Um, so people could bite on that. It wouldn't be too good, but. So that's a, it's a very easy way just by cooking those down with the sugar. And you need a little more sugar than you think because those cranberries are wicked tart. Yeah. So put the sugar in there and then the zest from the orange and then either nutmeg or cloves. I prefer the nutmeg. And that, uh, that makes a really incredible, um, cranberry sauce. We always have that. So I wasn't too far off because I, I'd always, uh, I'd go out and get a little can of the mandarin oranges and throw those in there. But your way is definitely better. That's why I asked the question. What about some stuff? Let's bring some nuts in. Let's let's do something with chestnuts. And then, you know, there's a, probably a lot more people that have access to local pecans. So get something for both of those. Yeah, absolutely. Um, those are great, you know, chestnut stuffing, pecans are great like that. I like to put um, pecans right in my um, in my stuffing. and Or a lot of people maybe in your neck of the woods call it dressing. Definitely where I am in the south, it's dressing up north. 
it's stuffing, but I like to make um, the stuffing with some sausage, and I'll, I'll buy uh, the sausage that has sage in it. So what I'll do is I render out some sausage, and then I use um, usually, a, and I know you had talked in one of your episodes about a, a trinity and a mirepoix. Now, I like to use the trinity, and the difference in the trinity, a mirepoix is celery, onion, and carrot. The trinity um, omits the carrot and puts bell pepper in its place. Now, that's what I like to use is the uh, is the trinity. So I'll, I'll mince those up, and I'll cook the, the trinity with the sausage, right in that sausage fat. And then I like to do quite a bit of button mushrooms. And these are just those simple Pennsylvania button mushrooms. And a quick tip to your listeners, don't buy those things in the package because you pay quite a bit more. Buy them loose. They're much cheaper buying them loose. You'll have to wash them. Um, and don't worry about you, people using silly mushroom brushes. I mean, come on, we, we've got uh, a lot of things to do. Put them in a the <laughs> colander, rinse those, rinse those things off. Don't worry, yeah, they're going to absorb a little water, no big deal. Slice them up, and then after your marathon sausage is cooked down, throw in all of those mushrooms, cook that whole thing together, and then um, what I like to do is you have to make a decision. Either you're going to go with, you know, like uh, regular breading, you know, a lot of people use that stovetop stuffing, and basically what that is is basically stale bread chopped up or cornbread. And I go for cornbread. And you can, if you want to use Jiffy uh, cornbread mix, there's nothing wrong with it. You can use that. Make up a few um, trays of uh, Jiffy cornbread mix. Break that up in there, and that's when you're going to want to put uh, your nuts, either chestnuts or uh, pecans. Yeah. But Again, remember, nuts are great, but anytime you can add another layer, a layer of flavor, that's even better. What I like to do is toast those in a dry skillet. Mm. Toast them up till they get nice and toasty, break them up, and throw those in there. And then you're going to want to add some broth. And you can either add, you know, chicken broth or you could add turkey broth, whatever you have. You're going to want that to be a little moister because when you add the breading, and it could be a loaf of stale bread that you chop up, or it could be the cornbread like I talked about. Once you get that thing mixed up, you're going to want to put quite a bit of stock on it so it's not dry. And a great tip for people is the stuffing. This can be made up days. You could do that on Tuesday morning. That's what I always do. Yeah, Yeah. get that thing, get it done ahead of time. That way you can just tuck it in the oven and because it's 90% cooked already, you just need to heat it through. So when your turkey's done, you don't have to worry about throwing everything under the sun in the oven at once. Once you remove the turkey, the, the oven's ripping hot. You can then throw, you know, your casseroles in there that generally are going to need 25 to 45 minutes maximum. Uh, another thing you can do is people, everyone's going to make mashed potatoes or, or um, you know, mashed sweet potatoes. You can Peel those things and put them in water a day ahead of time. That way you're not having to do that uh, the day of. They'll be fine. Uh, you can even squeeze a lemon in the water. Uh, but get those things peeled ahead of time, uh, either sweet potatoes or mash, and that saves time as well. Let's talk about potatoes in a second, man. I want to I go back on the sausage real quick. What kind of sausage do you use? I mean, you mentioned sage, but are you looking at like kind of a smoked sausage, a breakfast? What kind of sausage are you talking about for your stuffing? Well, here in uh, my neck of the woods, there's a company that uh, makes, it's called Nieces, N-E-E-C-E-S, and they make uh, sausage that it just comes in a one-pound square. It's wrapped in, like, wax paper, and that's pretty good stuff. 
if you've got a place that makes real sausages, you want to get, like, sweet Italian sausages, or you can even use breakfast sausage. Okay. Any of that is, is fine. Um, but you, if, you, if you can find one that's got sage, great. If not, you just add the fresh sage in there. Very cool. But, you know, you could use the smoked. Uh, the smoked sausage would go better, I think, if you're doing a chestnut something than the pecan. Yeah, but I've done, pretty, pretty I've done the, the andouille sausage all cut up and cubed mixed in with a, with a cornbread and chestnuts, and that was pretty awesome. I want to say another thing about your method of, of cooking the, the stuffing outside of the bird. Uh, again, I've got these people that have this bland, one-dimensional appetite. So I can do like a really cool stuffing like you just described, and me and maybe my brother-in-law and maybe my son will eat it, and then everybody else can have their casserole dish full of plain old boring breadcrumbs. And, and that's... Right. And then the other thing is when you do that, you throw that in there at the end, stuffing that comes out of a bird, even if it's done right, it's it's always it's moist and that's good, but there's never any crunchy part. When you do it in a casserole dish, the top of it gets that golden brown crunchy. That I mean to me that's that's kind of the best part. I, if I could get away with it, I'd be scraping the top off. Um because I, I really like that. So that's another thing you get there. But you were going off on potatoes. What are some uh things we can do to keep our potatoes from coming out, let's say not quite the way we want them to? Yeah, this is, uh, you know, mashed potato 101, and um, I see this all the time when I go to people's house, uh, even family members, like I go to their house, they, let's say, there's two schools of thought when you're doing mashed potatoes, uh, either steamed or boiled. Now, I'm going to tell you right now that I prefer steaming the potatoes. My mother-in-law is German, there's a lot of heritage there of steaming potatoes, and think about it, potatoes, when you throw them in water and you cook them in water, boiling them, they're going to soak up a lot of water. And once they have a lot of moisture content, you're not going to be able to infuse them with much more moisture. Got you. So water doesn't have any flavor. What I like to do is steam the potatoes. And this is a great tip, again, is you can steam these potatoes in the morning, right? Cut yep. them up and try to have the, the sizes somewhat uniform. Like you know, a regular baked potato, peel it, cut it in half, and then cut each uh, half and half two more times. So then put them all in there, steam those things off, and then they can just sit room temperature covered for a while. And here's the critical thing. People always will cook. Uh, the potatoes will come out whether they steam them or boil them, and then they pour uh, milk or cream out of the refrigerator and butter, and then they bring them to the table, and then you got the mother-in-law, you know, putting her nose up again. You can't put cold stuff on hot potatoes. Because then what people do, oh, they're cold, and then they put them on the oven, and then they start stirring them, and the bottom burns and all that. So what you need to do is take a stock pot. And, again, remember the great things about mashed potatoes. Forget about a diet. Um, this is the holidays. Yep. Put two to three sticks of whole butter in the pot. Fill the rest up with um, either half and half heavy cream or a combination of milk and heavy cream, and then remember, you're going you're gonna, to uh, start to warm this mixture up, and one thing I'm going to tell people is this is not the type of mixture you can put on a stove and walk off, because milk and cream, <laughs> once they scald, they're going to expand tremendously, and when that comes over the pot, it can easily catch on fire. You can have a grease fire. So use a pretty tall sauce pot. Don't fill it more than halfway and watch it. You want it to come up just to a scald, then you want to turn that thing all the way down, and here's where you can get creative because you can put 
herbs and garlic and onions, things like that. And what I like to do is I will make this, essentially it's a tea, right? It's, it's your milk and cream and your butter, and I bring it up so it gets to the simmer point, turn it way down, and I like to put um, garlic cloves, right, whole garlic cloves in there, and then I like to put uh, chives, and this is a great time of year to get mm. chives. Um, so take a bunch of chives, chop them up, and put them in that mixture. And then what you're doing is you're creating an awesome infusion of that liquid. So then once that stuff is on the stove and you've got it turned down, you can even put some tinfoil on it to keep it hot. Then when your potatoes come out, you know, out of the steamer or out of the water, if you choose to do it that way, put them in the pot. And remember, they're in the pot and you're about to mash them. As you start adding that liquid to it, make more liquid than you think you're going to need, but never pour it all in at once. Sure. If you pour it in all at once, you can have soupy potatoes. So put a little bit in at a time. And what I like to do as well is a lot of people listening will have a KitchenAid mixer with a whisk attachment. And that's a great way to make those super whipped, and when I say gummy, I mean this in a good way, slightly gummy potatoes. Like if you whip potatoes, particularly Idaho potatoes, there's a lot of starch in there. They can get like wallboard taste if you over-whip them. But if you put them in there with that whisk and you just get them to where they've got that awesome kind of thick mouthfeel, that's really good. But then you want to ladle that that uh, hot mixture of cream and butter and, and the herbs and garlic, ladle that in a little bit at a time and watch it. And then you want to be sure that you season those potatoes because it's very hard to add the seasoning when the potatoes are fully whipped. So Put a little salt, a little pepper in right before you start adding a liquid. Okay, then let the mixture let the uh, mixer go for a minute and take your spoon, taste it, and decide where it is. And keep tasting it as you go. And then you're going to have properly seasoned potatoes, and they're going to be ripping hot when you bring them to the table. I guess then the other thing is all that flavors in the potatoes because you haven't oversaturated them with boiling, so they're able to take that liquid up instead of just be kind of, let's say, inf- you know, kind of allowed to thin out a little bit, which is what I guess what's happening when you're just dumping some milk in there with, to a boiled potato. One other thing I think we should might want to mention um, for the new person that's never, never cooked a Thanksgiving meal before, um, there's things like red potatoes and purple potatoes and golden potatoes, and they're great for cooking with, but you don't want to make mashed potatoes with those. Now, that, that's a good point. And uh, the real classic, there's two types that I would recommend, either your standard Idaho potato or a Yukon gold potato. And those potatoes, they have the necessary starch content to whip up and give you that mouthfeel that you want. If you use a red bliss potato or, you know, a Peruvian purple potato, whatever, those generally don't have the uh, the properties that the other two, the Yukon or the Idaho potato, will have. And a lot of times they'll call an Idaho potato, they'll call it a russet. Correct. Any of those are fine. I like to use uh, Yukon Golds myself. Um, and that's a very buttery potato. It'll look either whitish or yellow. Um, those are the best ones to use. I've seen people try to do mashed potatoes with red skin potatoes, and they come out with almost this glazed look, and they just never, they never actually have the consistency you're looking for. And I know it's kind of like it's a little bit late on Thanksgiving morning when you're whipping those things up and going, oh gee, this doesn't look right. So I wanted to mention no, that's a, that. One. That's a great point. It's a great point. And uh, and again, like you just said, remember when you start adding your final liquid buttermilk, if you add it to a Waterlogged potato, like you said, it's only going to take so much, and that's really where you're going to suffer. So I would definitely advise people to steam them. 
So let's talk about maybe a few other things here. We got some time left. Um, let's talk about some squash. You got any ideas for what we can do with some squash to kind of, I mean, that's a very traditional thing, right? I mean, if we look back to the first Thanksgivings, uh, you know, the natives and the, and the, the pilgrims sitting down, even though there's some mythology around that, you go back to the time frame of the genesis of this holiday and squash was, you know, grown everywhere. It could be relied upon to be produced in northern climates. Uh, but a lot of people go out and they look and see all these beautiful squashes in, in a, in a, in a, you know, a market or a grocery store and they might even buy a couple and they bring them home and put them on the table for a decoration. But those are actually pretty good eating things. You got any ideas for what people could do to incorporate that into their Thanksgiving table? Oh, absolutely. And, and yeah, and you make some great points about those. And, and of course we're talking to, to people that are, that have a, an eye for survival and being self-sufficient. Um, the, the squashes keep a long time too. So they'll keep three or four months, which is awesome. Um, but take squashes and, and usually there's, there's three main types that people are going to mess with during the holidays. There's butternut squash, there's acorn squash, and then a lot of people mess with a, a hovered squash, um, which is a good one too. But I like to keep it really simple. And instead of um, a lot of times here in the South, they make this casserole and they take sweet potato, I mean, excuse me, uh, they take butternut squash or even sweet potatoes sometimes, but they just chill it with uh, marshmallows and like a, ton of sugar, and at the end, you, you have something that, that a kid might like, but it's really a very unsophisticated thing. What I like to do is forget about that and think uh, Italian or think French, and particularly the Italians, they have a way of doing things that are ultra-simplistic. Now, a squash, like uh, a butternut squash or an acorn squash, these things are incredible. What I like to do is take... Uh, let's say you're going to work with an acorn squash. First of all, um, be very careful when you cut these things. A lot of people out there every year will wind up with very bad cuts trying to, to uh, work with a squash. Now, when you cut those things, again, hold the knife. You're going to want to hold the top of the knife and the handle of the knife, push it into that squash, and then you can either, even just lift the whole squash that's stuck to the knife up in the air and Hang it on the board till you get through it. But be careful no matter what you do. But you can take those, remove the seeds from the inside. You can toast the seeds later if you want. But let's just say you throw them out. Remove the seeds. And what I like to do is I will make, again, we talked about making an infusion of the cream. I make an infusion of olive oil. And I'll take extra virgin olive oil, and I put it on the stove, and I'll put it on very, very low heat. What I like to do is take fresh rosemary and garlic. And I'll take garlic, like let's say I'll take two to three garlic cloves, peel them and just smash them. You don't want to mince them up fine. Just smash them, put those in the pot, put in the fresh herb, and put in quite a bit of olive oil, like a whole cup or a cup and a half of olive oil. Turn it on the slowest of heat and stay there with it. Once it starts to bubble up even a little bit, turn off the heat, and all of a sudden after... That thing cools off. You are going to have um, an oil that just got an incredible amount of flavor. And incidentally, it's one of the secrets why my pasta sauces are so good, that infusion technique. But once you have that oil that's flavored with garlic and rosemary, now when you cut your squashes open, you can cut them into sections. Like a, you got to remember, an acorn squash is round. So you cut it in half and then put it round side up and then slice it into slices. 
put lay those things on a sheet pan and take that oil that you just made and drizzle that oil all over those things and then hit them with salt and pepper. You can even take the rosemary that was cooking in the oil or take some new rosemary. And uh, remember, you don't want to eat big chunks of rosemary, so just take a couple of branches uh, and strew them on top or even fresh thyme. Put the thyme on top. And if you happen to have some uh, thick salt, like a sea salt, or like a fleur de sel from France, that would be a good place to use it. If you don't, try to use Morton kosher salt. But salt them, pepper them, drizzle them with that flavored oil, throw some fresh herbs, cover them with foil, and roast those, and you are going to be a rock star because it's such a unique flavor. It's got a ton of simplicity. Every time I make that, people are stunned because, like I said, they're used to having, you know, a marshmallow. Sweet baby food, right? Yeah, sweet baby food. <laughs> that's a really great way to do the squashes. Awesome, and that'll work just as well for the butternut as it does for the acorn then, right? Yeah, yeah, the same thing, yeah. On the, on the butternut, guys, if you're growing your own, here's what I've learned about squashes with my wars with the, the vine borers uh, in the past couple of years. One, butternut and, and, and things that are similar to it tend to have more resistance. And two, if you grow the long neck pumpkin squashes that they are kind of famous in Pennsylvania, the taste of those in a butternut are so close, I can't tell the difference. And with those long neck pumpkins, 85% of the squash, there's no seeds, there's no nothing. It's just solid flesh. Um, they're a bit big, so you got to eat a lot of them once you start cutting them up. But, man, I've really enjoyed those. And I found, like, almost every other squash I've tried to grow down here, Keith, these vine borers, I could get maybe one or two uh, rounds of squash off them, and then the vine borers just tear them up. So uh, that might help some other yeah. folks out. Uh, you got anything yeah. else, man, that would just be, like, kind of like your, your you know, coup de grace or something for, for oh, laying it down for Thanksgiving? Yeah. Remember, when you're, whenever you're planning a meal or a menu, you've got to think, um, you know, and this is when you, when you step back and think, and, and I do a lot of thinking about food. It's always on my mind. That's what I think about. But remember, you're going to have turkey. You know, when you talk about dark meat or white meat, it's pretty rich. When you got that gravy, it's pretty rich. Those are what, what you would call umami flavors. Those are very rich flavors. That's what's great about having some cranberry sauce because it's a little tart and sweet. It helps to balance that off. Um, also, mashed potatoes that got quite a bit of butter in them. So you've got a lot of flavors on the table that are heavy. They're heavy, and they've got a lot of fat content in them, and it tends to, you know, they're great together, but too much is, is, um, is a little overbearing. So think about your side dishes, and what I like to do is throw some things in there that are going to have more of a, um, a quality like a, let's say, a Brussels sprout or even turnip greens. They're going to have acid to them. And what I love to do is um, we'll, we'll have a dish on the table called Brussels sprouts and or Brussels sprouts with Mornay sauce. And people can find this recipe. We'll make sure in the show notes that they can get to it. Okay. Um, and it's, all, it's also in my cookbook. But Brussels sprouts are incredible. They're basically, they're in the same, the, the, the brassica, I, I think it's called family, you know, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, broccoli, broccoli cauliflower, cauliflower, all that stuff, yep. Yeah, it's all the same thing. But take those, um, take the Brussels sprouts, and you can get them in season in a lot of places right now. If you can buy them on the stalk, even better. But take those things, you want to peel one or two of the outer leaves off, um, cut off the stem end, slice them in half. And what you'll do is, again, um, steam those things, but do not over-steam them. If you, if you steam them too long, they're mush. 
steam them for 10 minutes. That's it. And then take them out and run them under cold water. And this is, again, something that can be done ahead of time. Remember, when you're cooking a meal like this, it's like being a, a conductor of an orchestra. You've got all these things going at once. The more stuff you can get done in advance, the better. So you let's say you cook your Brussels sprouts the day ahead of time so they're cold. Now you can take what's called a Mornay sauce. It's very easy to make. There's a, a video and a recipe for it. It's basically a cheese sauce. It starts out as a white sauce, which is a bechamel, which is one of the five uh, French mother sauces. Once you add cheese to it, that's called a compound sauce. And I like to add Gruyere, which is a true Swiss cheese. is what they use in fondue, one of the co- uh, components of fondue. So make a Mornay sauce. It's a compound sauce of bechamel. And you take that Mornay sauce, you lay your um, your Brussels sprouts in a casserole, salt and pepper, and then cover them up with um, this Mornay sauce. You can add a little bit of breadcrumbs on the top or even Ritz crackers if you have those. And then you bake that in the oven until it's all melty and delicious. And that is a perfect, even though it's got some heaviness from the cheese, there's a lot of acidity in those. Uh, Brussels sprouts, and that adds a whole different dimension to the meal. Another uh, thing that would do that would be turnip greens, which are great. And like you mentioned earlier, you had some turkey legs. You can cook a few turkey legs, shred the meat up, and add that to a pot of either turnip greens, mustard greens, kale greens, a little salt, pepper, and onion. You can slow cook those and serve that with your turkey. Again, breaks up the heaviness of the Got meal, you. and it brings contrast. It brings textural, wonderful stuff. And the last thing I'll throw out there for an idea that a lot of people don't know about, the French are famous for this. In the, in the fall, you usually can find leeks. Leeks are incredible. Um, go to the store and get, let's say you're cooking for, I don't know, five or six people. Get five or six um, leeks. What you want to do is cut off the, the root end, about a half an inch of the root end where it grew in the ground off, and then you want to cut uh, most of the green part off, but not all of it. You'll have maybe um, two to three inches of the green part. Now take those and take your knife, put them on your board. Remember, they're going to be round at the end. Slice them in half. What you want to do is take those leeks and you want to put those in um, water, and you want to make sure that those are uh, rinsed off extremely well because those, um, as they grow, there's layers. They grow in sandy soil. If you don't want your mother-in-law all mad, the last thing you want is anybody to be having uh, sand in their teeth. So rinse those leeks off very well. Now you've got leeks that are cut in half. What I like to do is take a casserole pan and lay your leeks out um, and... So the flat part is facing up. So lay them in a pan and season those with salt and pepper. And then let's say you've got some of that mixture left over from the mashed potatoes. Again, it's a it's a infusion of milk and butter and, and some herbs. Take that mixture and pour some of that. And don't be shy because a lot of it is got water and it's going to reduce down. Pour those and don't cover the leeks, but most of the way with that cream mixture. Use a shallow pan, something that's uh, a little bit wide, and then pour that cream over there, cover it tight with foil, and then you can cook those leeks at a low temperature, and you have essentially what will come out as braised leeks. 
Mm. And these are incredible because mm. the leek is a member of the onion family, but when you cook it and you braise it down, just like garlic goes from being kind of, um, you know, pungent to sweet, the leeks will kind of get that sweet and cook them long enough until they start to go a little bit brown. You're going to get a nice caramelization on there. The cream will cook down and get kind of sticky and thick all over them. That is an incredible side dish to some turkey. I mean, a mouthful of those yeah. braised, creamy leeks with a piece of turkey and maybe a little bit of that um, that, that tart cranberry sauce. Man, you got a winner. Dude, you're killing me here. <laughs> and, and, folks, if you've never had leeks, they're, to me, when they're cooked anyway, when they're when they're raw, they have more of that bite like you're saying. But when they're cooked and, and cooked slowly, kind of roasted or braised, they're like the mildest, sweetest, most delectable onion you can imagine. They're much more mild to me than an onion is. And they have less of that onion hit that you taste and more of that, that mild underneath sweet, so that's just awesome. Let's finish up with uh, two more thoughts. One, I want. What are your thoughts on wine? I mean, the classic is Beaujolais, uh, which is you know affordable. It's a young wine. It's fruity. It goes good with the cranberries. Any other thoughts for a wine pairing? Yeah, that that, that a lot of people have that with, with a light Beaujolais on there. But I also like to have um, a Riesling on the table um, on Thanksgiving, which is a, you know, a German, it comes from the northern part of France or even Germany, uh, which is a little bit of a sweet wine that, that's great served cold. That happens to pair really well with a lot of the flavors. Um, so, yeah, a little little Riesling and maybe a little uh, Beaujolais, and, and uh, people will have a great meal. And, and remember, the first of all, to have a lot of fun, cooking the meal is a lot of fun, and particularly to do some of these things, um, you're going to have a great meal. Remember that I'm going to be available for everybody to uh, answer any any questions. So feel free to contact me, and uh, I just hope that everybody has an incredible meal. I'm certainly looking forward to it. You know, every once in a while you have like a duh moment. I just had mine because I have a family that's again bland, and they're bigger on the white wines than the red wines, and um, kind of bringing in that sweet fruity thing. You know, and Chardonnay just doesn't go with this stuff, but that's what they all drink. So. I'm going to give the Riesling a shot this year, and that's that's one of those dumb moments. I should have thought of that like five Thanksgivings ago. So so thanks, man. And uh, what about dessert? Any any last words on dessert? Yeah, uh, I love. Um, we usually have a, a couple of selections of of desserts, and one of the things we always have is uh, cheesecake. And then um, I like to make um, some thing called a clafoutis. tea. And a clapoutis, again, is, is a French-inspired um, dessert. And this is great because it's, it's deadly easy. And a clapoutis can be made with, so let's say we're in the fall now. A lot of people can get access to some figs, um, any type of fruit, even some frozen cherries. Like you can go to the store, you can get a bag of organic frozen um, cherries, like they're Bing cherries or dark cherries. Look for those. Uh, I would recommend either cherries um, or figs. Figs may be a little hard to get this time of year, but uh, let's say we go with um, go with the cherries, and we'll make a cherry clapoutis. Now, everybody has made pancakes before. Essentially, the clapoutis is basically a batter, and what you're going to be doing is, is making uh, a batter. You can do it in a blender, and let's say you're going to use whole milk, you're going to use real butter, and you're going to use sugar and a little bit of flour. And you don't want it to be 
when I say batter, it's not going to be this quick, thick batter. It's going to be a little more towards crepe batter. So take a couple of pie plates, and what you'll do is you'll put these cherries, um, lay them in, and drain, drain the juices off, but lay the cherries in, and you can do two, three, five, whatever, plates of these. So you lay those cherries in there, and then you take your batter, and the batter needs to be sweet, but it's not American sweet. This is French sweet, where the berries and the batter, which is going to cook and get a little golden, that's the star of the show. It's not the sugar. You want to be able to taste fruit, fruit and, and the batter, but not a lot of sugar. So go easy with that. You also could put a touch of uh, vanilla extract in there or even almond extract. But um, once you take that batter, you're going to pour it, ladle it over the cherries, and you want to bring it about halfway up. The cherries need to be on top showing through the batter. Bake that in a slow oven, and, again, this could be done ahead of time, like 325-degree oven until it's set and just starting to go a little bit of golden brown. And that cherry clafoutis, tea, we talked a little bit about having that Riesling. Man, a slice of that, you know, right out of the pan. You could you could dust it with a little powdered sugar, or if you really want to gild the lily, buy a little bit of creme fraiche. You can get it in the tub. Um, usually there's a company called the Vermont Butter and Cheese Company that sells it. Um, get a little... Um, Creme fraiche, that clapout tea with a scoop of creme fraiche with that rich, nutty flavor and some of that uh, beautiful Riesling, and you are going to be a hero, and you don't even need to have pumpkin pie. I mean, pumpkin pie is great, but I think it could be a little overdone. So we're going to have uh, some cherry clapout tea this year. Awesome. And as far as the figs, man, I've got them all over my trees right now in the backyard, so maybe I'll have to try yeah, it with oh, figs. figs are, yeah, figs are great. Fig, a fig clapout tea, there should be a recipe uh, a video that I've done on YouTube for, um, I think it's a fig clapoutis. It's been a couple of years now, but yeah, that's a, it's a great unique dessert. And again, it's very easy. Um, you know, making a pumpkin pie, well, that's not hard. There's a lot of measuring and mixing and all that. This clapoutis, you can make the batter in a blender ahead of time, put it in the fridge. You open the bag of cherries, you toss them in the pie pan, put the batter, put it in the oven, you're done. And again, you got uniqueness. You got the tartness of the cherries. It's awesome. So I would uh, encourage people to give that a try. Folks, a little bit on the gardening and growing your own and stuff. If you've never eaten a fresh fig, you don't know what a fig tastes like. If your exposure to figs is fig newtons, you have no idea what a fig really is. My buddy Brian from ITS was over the other day, and I handed him a fresh fig off of one of my trees, and he absolutely couldn't believe what a fig really tastes like. They are an amazing thing. So... Um, I think that's, I mean, dude, you've done a better job than even I could have imagined you were going to do. I'm, I'm hungry now and I've eaten lunch already, so I'm going to have to go take a walk or something to keep from, from hitting the, hitting the, the stove and starting to cook something else. But, uh, man, that's just awesome. You had some stuff you wanted to make available and let people know about today as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like we had mentioned earlier, um, when I was on the show, the, the PSP members were, uh, ordering a lot of a lot of the stuff and becoming members, and I, and I want to thank all you guys for that. I really appreciate it because, you know, just like Jack, I'm an independent content producer, and um, you know, all the support really helps us do what we're going to do. But what I've got, and we're going to provide links in the show notes, is I want to offer. Um, we sell three packs of our um, thoughtful harvest sauce, either either the sun dried tomato and rosemary, or the uh, roasted red pepper variety. Uh, or flame roasted red pepper. Anybody that orders a three pack is going to get 
three spices as well. We sell really incredible, and I've blended myself. They're totally organic spice blends. And these are, I mean, I'm telling you, I know I make them and all, but these are some of the best spice blends. And everything is very fresh. And I'm going to throw in, um, for anybody that orders a three-pack of sauce, they're going to get three spices as well. And I'll, I'll pick the, um, the spices, and we're going to throw those in there. And, and those sell for $8 a piece, so that's a $24 value. Uh, also, we have a lifetime membership on the website. And in the show notes here, you're going to see a link for a Harvest Eating Lifetime membership. The recipes are hidden behind the member's wall. And, again, I do that. Um, because we need to, you know, keep the business going. But I am going to give people, because people pay $199 to get a lifetime membership. Anybody that orders a lifetime membership, and these are going to be, this will be a password-protected page, and uh, you, you'll make that available in the notes. But I'm going to give, uh, for the $199 lifetime, I'm going to give everybody a signed Harvest Eating Cookbook and a six-pack of our spices. Oh, wow. So that's going to yeah, that's that's I don't know, like a sixty dollar value. That's awesome. So we're gonna, yeah, that's really cool. And again, then, then people will have access to all of the recipes, you know, for as long as I'm alive. So uh, <laughs> I want I want to encourage people to to uh, take advantage of those too, and and thank everybody for um, their support. And I just hope everyone has a, a killer holiday and uh, be real safe and and uh, follow those tips to cook those turkeys and potatoes properly. And again, if anybody has questions. Uh, I'm here to help. Well, man, thanks for that. And I want to just say something about your sauce. Um, I ordered when you did the last offer. I don't even know how you did this. You did like a case for like 88 bucks or something. I ordered two cases of the sauce, folks. I took immediately one case up to Arkansas and put it in with my preps, and I kept about half. I gave about half of one of the cases away. The boxes that showed up on my door, uh, I don't know how you shipped them for 88 bucks a, a case. I mean, it was... And the sauces are, and I've, I'm like a sauce fiend, and I like all different types of pasta sauces and things. Best I've ever eaten. And, and that's not just floating your boat or anything there. Um, absolutely some of the best I've ever eaten. And the flame-roasted red pepper to me has just this, this tiny spicy kick to it, and it's just awesome. I've been doing it with, like, tortellini and stuff like that. And, folks, um, take advantage of this. As far as the, the seasonings in the book for uh, going along with a lifetime membership. That's just awesome as well. So I'll definitely make sure those and any other links that you want, Keith, are in the show notes uh, when the show airs live tomorrow. Um, and, and thanks for being on here. Any last thoughts? Um, I, I, again, I'll just talk for a real quick second about those sauces. Is, is I do appreciate that you liked them. We've been getting some incredible response uh, when people try those. And I want people to know that the uh, it's not just the pasta sauce. It's kind of a uh, a mission that I'm on, and, and that's to support U.S. farmers. Because like I mentioned earlier in the show, a lot of the premium sauces, and I'm talking the ones that are, you know, seven, eight, nine bucks a bottle, uh, a lot of these guys are, you know, touting imported oil, imported cheese, imported tomatoes. And to me, what that just says is our farmers are not good enough. And what I've done is the exact opposite, and I have personally sourced uh, every single ingredient that goes in those sauces from small to mid-sized family farms and artisans. I mean, the olive oil I use, 25 to $30 a gallon, my cost. It comes from one farm uh, called uh, Corto Olive. It's in Lodi, California, and those are grown, harvested by hand, and squeezed on one place. So the oil that goes in here is 
cold-pressed extra virgin olive oil. All of the herbs are fresh and grown from the Van Drunen Farms in Illinois. So everything in those sauces is uh, not only incredible, but it supports a U.S. family farm or an artisan producer such as a cheesemaker. So all of those things are, are great. And if you go to the Thoughtful Harvest website, uh, thoughtfulharvest.com, you can uh, look at some of the profiles of those vendors. But um, in addition to the, the offers I just made, Jack, we're going to have a, a link in here for a case of sauce with a whole six-pack of spices. I've had to actually, um, on this one, uh, it, instead of being $85, it'll be 95 because I did lose my shirt in shipping. Cause I can so imagine. I, I Really, guys, I mean, I had a couple of people go, that seems kind of high for, for, for pasta sauce. Like, like, like Keith said, it's more than a pasta sauce. And the quality and 100% American grown and made, I mean, that's uh, – and I don't even understand because I started looking at maybe doing some things with some, some prepper foods that were specific for cooking and all. I started looking at sourcing some dehydrated vegetables. And things like carrots and onions are being imported from China. And I'm like, well, we can't grow a carrot and a freaking onion in America, and I've even found out that some of those, this is this is nuts, the Chinese are buying the carrots from here, shipping them over to China, doing the dehydration, the prep, and sending them back, and that just seems completely pointless to me, so I know my listeners are going to appreciate what you've done with that, and, and I certainly do. Thank you for backing American business that way. Yeah, no, that's for sure, and, and for, I don't know how, but those Chinese must have garlic fields, you know, from here to the end of the earth because the garlic they send over, you can buy it for a fraction of the cost of the garlic that I use from California. Same thing with the onions from Peru. I mean, I'm sure the people in Peru are great people and all that, but does it make any sense to ship onions that I can get in Vidalia, Georgia from our own farmers? Does it make sense to ship them all the way in from Peru? I don't think so. It it doesn't to me. You know, here's what gets me. Why import an onion? I mean, okay, the, the Italians are known for the best Parmesan cheese in the world. That That's fine. But th- who's known for the best onions in the world it is is, the, is Georgia, like you mentioned right. there. So why would we go to a foreign source for something like an onion when we have the world-renowned best available here? That's that, That's true. And don't forget, Jack, you're from Texas, and you guys got some darn good uh, onions there called yep. Texas Super Sweet. Those are great. And, and, of course, Washington has Walla Walla onions. But, you know, because I like to keep it local, I make my sauce in North Carolina, so it's only a few hours to get to buy Dahlia onions. But, uh, yeah, buy American, people. That's definitely the way to go. And, uh, again, happy Thanksgiving to everyone. And, Jack, I definitely appreciate um, chatting with you and coming on. I think we, uh, we think a lot alike. Yeah, Keith, uh, thanks for being on the air with me today. And, folks, uh, I know this is not maybe the typical show because we get into a lot of, like, exotic stuff. I'm going to have Keith come back on as a regular guest. He's one of the favorite people I've had on. And I'm going to have him come back on probably in December. We're going to talk a lot about cooking sustainably with stuff from your backyard and your local markets. We we went out a little bit outside of that today because it's Thanksgiving, man. It's time to enjoy things. It's time to be festive. It's time to... To kind of think about the fact that, you know, the long winter's coming, but we're going to feast first. And uh, to kind of tie that in, tomorrow we're going to be doing a show uh, that's my annual show that I do every year on Thanksgiving. That's, you know, the history of Thanksgiving, where it came from, the mythology and the reality behind Thanksgiving. But today, Keith, man, I really enjoyed having you on. Thanks for being here. This has been Jack Spirico along with Keith Snow, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we 
there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Shut up.